Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 66, The Italian Rebirth, Part 2. Last time, I looked at the development of tragedy and comedy in the early Italian Renaissance. It was a slow process, beginning towards the end of the 15th century, but gaining impetus from the rediscovery of Sophocles in 1502, plays that were printed by Aldus Manutius, based in Venice. Aristotle was also rediscovered and championed by Giovanni Trissino, who took up Aristotelian stage theory and abandoned his Senecan model in the process. Tragedy developed at the artistic hub of Ferrera under the protection and largesse of Duke Ercole d'Este, and produced new versions of Greek tragedy by the likes of Giovanni Giraldi, but tragedy remained something of an academic exercise and failed to find the popularity that comedy did. Out of the copying and adaptation of Terence and Plautus, Commedia Eredita was developed, domestic comedy that still used the ancient Roman-style stock characters, but which was slowly turned to more modern concerns. Ferreira again played a big role in the development by giving space to playwrights like Ludovico Ariosto so that they could develop their craft. Elsewhere, Florentine politician Niccolo Machiavelli turned his hand to playwriting, producing one of the best comedies of the period, Mandragola, or The Mandrake. And we finished last time with a profile of the extraordinary life of Piero Aretino, his plays, his brushes with papal authority, and the story of an elephant called Hanno. Another interesting character from the same period is Angelo Biolco. Like Aretino, his parentage is uncertain, but his work suggests that he had a good education. When he was born, about 1502, his hometown of Padua was a burgeoning university and mercantile town, so good education was more common there than in many other places. Although he was illegitimate, he seems to have been accepted by his father's family, whose wealth came from owning and leasing several farms in the area. Bielko worked for the family as an administrator, and his interest in theatre was initially as a leisure pursuit, but through a friendship with a Venetian aristocrat, he discovered a keen interest in all artistic forms. The home of Alvesi Conaro in Padua, where Bielko was a frequent guest, was a centre of cultural activity, with guests from all areas of the arts and philosophy meeting and exchanging views and ideas. Bielko had briefly tried his hand at acting in his youth, and with help and guidance from artists in his new circle of friends, he established an acting troupe for whom he wrote scripts while keeping the lead roles to himself. From 1520 onwards, young noblemen from the artistic set became performers in his plays in Padua, Venice and Ferrara. It was there that he met Ariosto, who was then running the theatrical activities for the Duke, and honed his craft under his tutelage. Bielko's scripts were consistently reworked and relied heavily on improvised passages, and they were never in his lifetime translated from the northern Italian dialect that he wrote in, so many are lost, and there are no definitive scripts to help us define his work. But what made his play special was his ability to combine the two great influences of his life, the high life of the literary salon and the commonplace life of the peasants who were his tenants. The language used in his plays contains both extremes, with the peasant characters using coarse, vulgar language that also includes out-and-out obscenities, while the higher-class characters still appeal to the court audiences. He adapted Plautus, updating the plots to fit his times, but was most at home writing and performing in rustic farces. 
From about 1524, he began a series of short plays that featured recurring characters involved in a series of light-hearted adventures. The main character was Rosante, a scheming and canny peasant who could turn violent in a moment, hated women and could lie on impulse, but who also managed an outspoken honesty and inadvertent truth-telling. As such, audiences found him an endlessly fascinating character, and character and actor became one when Biolko became professionally known simply as Rosante whenever he performed. These plays capitalised on the political situation of the time, where the peasants of Padua resented the control that Venice had over grain prices, and Rosante was not afraid to give this expression. But besides this, and some interest in the use of the range of language within the Paduan dialect, the plays now have little to commend them. Many are little more than bawdy comic skits that rely heavily on the comic skills of the actors, and the readiness of audiences to laugh at lower characters without being offended themselves. Biolko died in 1543, still relatively young, and some of his work found its way into print. From there it was picked up and absorbed into the Commedia dell'arte repertoire, but within a century his original plays were all but forgotten. Anton Francesco Grazzini, writing in the middle of the 16th century, was well known for his comic stories that mixed comedy and not a little blood and gore. Although he had been a vocal critic of the state of Italian comedy on the stage, he did little to move it forward with his own efforts, that still relied on crafty servants, adultery and foolish masters for their comedy. His efforts are more remembered now because some of his plot twists were lifted by later dramatists, including Shakespeare, who plundered his work for some of the points in Much Ado About Nothing. It's not often that a single play can be considered to be a game-changer in the development of a genre. But with some good reason, Annibal Caro's 1543 play, The Scruffy Scoundrels, can be thought of as such. The creation of this work has a tortuous history. Caro had worked his way to clerical service in the Vatican at the time when the shadow of the Reformation was being felt. As a response, Pope Paul III took a two-pronged approach. He set about an anti-corruption agenda, but also extensive renovations in the city of Rome. He'd only been elected because he was in his 60s and therefore his pontificate would be a short one, but he proved everybody wrong by living until he was 81 and ruling for 15 years. Caro found a position with one of the Pope's illegitimate sons, fathered before he took holy orders as was not uncommon at the time, who now held high position in the Vatican establishment. As part of his employment, he was commissioned, probably ordered, to write a play in secret. The intention of the Pope's son was that the entertainment should work as a propaganda piece for his father, praising his care for the Eternal City in restoring its beauty and quelling recent unrest and crime that had resulted in some serious rioting. Some scholars hold that this political aspect to the comedy is a significant change in itself. But Caro also innovated with the introduction of three plot strands, moving firmly away from Aristotle's unity of a single plot strand with the possibility of just one minor subplot. In his prologue, he defends this approach, saying, Constipated traditionalists may take offence at the triple plot, since the ancients never went beyond a single or a double one. But don't forget that though there are no existing precedents for our current procedure, neither are there prohibitions against it. Note that the author has followed the traditions in other areas, and in any case, change is inevitable, since the actions and laws of actions depend on the times and fashions, and they change with every age.
As a comic propaganda piece, Caro was certainly trying to cause a stir. Several of the characters are identifiable as caricatures of prominent Roman citizens. But whether his treble plot innovation was a conscious part of the disruption he hoped to cause, or simply came from an urge to create more complexity in drama, it's not clear. Caro borrowed one plot from Greek sources, one from the folktale tradition, and a third from Plautus and Terence, but he fails to connect them in any satisfying way, and the play suffers from being formless and reliant on extraordinary circumstances and coincidences, just like many before it. Caro's employer, the Pope's son, became very unpopular when he imposed taxes on the lands he administered and was assassinated before the play was produced. Caro then pretty much hid the play away and refused to circulate it. It was only more than a decade after his death in 1566 that it was first published and performed. Alessandro Piccolomini is another of the Italian playwrights who astound in the scope, depth and volume of their endeavours. Born into a noble family in Siena in 1508, thanks to an incredibly inquisitive mind and a good university education, he became a polymath who wrote on many subjects, from mathematics to poetry and from geography to philosophy. Thanks to the changing political situation in Siena, he moved around the country frequently, picking up influences as he took up a number of different clerical and tutoring roles, until he ended up in Rome working for Pope Gregory XIII, who he assisted with the reform of the calendar, creating the Gregorian calendar, which is still used today. His middle years were a contrast of periods of mental instability and as a leading light in the cultural and scientific circles in Rome. In his last years, he became a theologian and even Archbishop of Patras in Greece. His theatrical output was small compared to his other activities, but his comic plays are notable for the prominence of female roles. In contrast to the likes of Caro, where women rarely appeared and, when they did, they were the butt of sexual jokes, Piccolomini preferred to show women in a respectful light. His plays were produced under the auspices of the Accademia degli Intronato, an organisation he led until it was closed down because of the perceived extreme political and religious motives of its members. The audiences attended by invitation only and were comprised mainly of women. None of the guests were expected to pay an entrance fee and entertainment was the order of the day. But these are not just bland comedies. Piccolomini managed to insert caustic humour and romantic interest in proportions that his audience could appreciate without taking offence. As such, his plays are more balanced than his predecessors, but also more measured and ultimately rather sentimental. In this form, he is the originator of a style of light comedy that became very popular in the later half of the century. Piccolomini's first play, L'Amour Costante, written in 1531 in the local dialect of Tuscany, as were all his plays, is a gentle romantic comedy that also satirises the cult of Petrarch that was current at the time. His choice to use the local dialect was probably driven by the needs of his female audience, many of whom didn't speak Latin, and his style of light comedy with some satire, contained in a romantic story, continued throughout his career. But his audience didn't always react as he expected. In his 1544 play, El Alessandro, which was written for the Academy Private Show, has two prologues. The original flatters the ladies present and suggests that the play will offer them moral guidance. In the second prologue, written for a later performance, he chastises the ladies of the audience for preferring the episodes of vulgar buffoonery to the moral lessons. 
It's another play that involves three plot lines, which is something a little surprising from a writer who'd already expressed his belief in the principles of Aristotle in a work on the poetics, and, like his other plays, borrows scenes and plot points from his Roman predecessors and his nearer Italian contemporaries. And I think at this point, it's worth noting that at this time there was little concept of ownership of an original work, and no sort of legal structure around such a concept. Borrowing from the ancient or the more recent past didn't hold the sense of plagiarism that we have now. It's quite possible that the weaving of a well-known plot or two into a scene of a new play was appreciated as a skill of the dramatist. So Piccolomini could borrow a tale from Boccaccio, whose collection of stories The Decameron was already 150 years old at the time, or from Aristino, without any concern for critical approbation. It's also worth remembering that these plays were not written with the idea that they would be still performed or examined as an academic exercise centuries later. Quite the opposite, in fact. These were light entertainments for a specific audience at a salon or town carnival, and in that sense intended to be very transitory. Piccolomini himself seems like an odd mix of characters to us now. As well as being a playwright, he was a moral philosopher and head of the esteemed academy. Later, he was a theologian and senior churchman. But his plays not only contain many obscenities and crude language in the mouths of the lower characters, but a lot of moral misbehaviour amongst the aristocratic characters, and portraits of the clergy that are, well, let's say, less than flattering. Priests, nuns, abbots, even cardinals, are at times shown as heavy drinkers, greedy, self-serving, and creatures driven by various lusts. Piccolomini was fond of using animal comparisons in the descriptions of his characters, so frog-faced priests or parrot-like nuns are not uncommon in his plays. We have little idea about how Piccolomini squared this portrayal with his own conscience, but as a friend and admirer of Aretino and resident of Siena, which was a focus for critical views of the clergy and the need for reform, this aspect of his plays is very much in keeping with the zeitgeist of his time and place. The details of El Alessandro had been particularly picked over because of the opinions expressed in the play may be close to Piccolomini's true self. The character who lends his name to the play only plays a very small part in it, being something of an outside narrator to the main action. This, and the fact that he shares his first name with the author, has been taken to suggest that the play includes opinions that were strongly held by the playwright. The play had an afterlife after its original Academy presentation, remaining popular for 50 years or so, thanks to finding its way into print and several reprints, until the plot turns up in a simplified and updated form in Elizabethan comedies. Piccolomini died in March 1578, and his tomb can still be seen in Siena's magnificent cathedral. Rapid advancement and decline in fortunes, sometimes repeated many times in a life, characterises many of the lives of figures in Renaissance Italy. At the pinnacle amongst the playwrights in this respect was Machiavelli, who was removed from power by the rise of the Medici in Florence, but at least his enforced exile was put to good use for his literary and theatrical output. A fellow Florentine and far more prolific dramatist had a similarly bumpy ride throughout his life thanks to the rollercoaster fortunes of those associated with the Medici. Giovanni Maria Cecchi was the scion of a long-established Florentine family, whose members had faithfully served the Medici as administrators for most of that time. He was born in 1518, just when Medici rule was briefly overthrown in the province, and life got even worse a few years later when his father was assassinated. 
The killing was motivated by a combination of personal and political antagonism that were thoroughly entwined in Renaissance Italy in a way rarely replicated since. The family were well aware of the identity of the assassin and complained to the recently restored Medici dukes. But they took no action, and the Cecchi family knew that they were falling out of favour fast. That fall was compounded when scandal engulfed the family. Giovanni's uncle, his late father's brother, was murdered by his wife by poisoning. In her defence, she protested that he had beaten her frequently and abused his children. Whatever the truth of that, she was found guilty and suffered the shame of a public execution by decapitation. Her son was then caught stealing and spent time in the common prison. At 16, Giovanni's mother died and he became the head of a household with a long and illustrious history, but no current kudos. Much to his credit, Giovanni managed to complete his basic education and then studied to follow in his father's footsteps as a public notary. He was appointed to a string of public positions thanks to his reputation for honesty and diligence in his work. He married at 35 and then set up a wool trading company that prospered despite difficult trading conditions at the time. He purchased a villa in the countryside and spent more and more of his time there until he completely retired from commercial life a wealthy man. He'd started playwriting earlier in his life, but it was from his Tuscan villa that his output increased, and his closeness with the local peasantry is reflected in the rustic farces he wrote. With the exception of Biolko, no other playwright of the time has a better ear for the speech, habits and beliefs of the working classes in Tuscany. Even in later years, he had enormous energy, and churned out not only 21 comedies and many religious plays, but letters, poems, eulogies, advice for bureaucrats and magistrates, a dictionary of proverbs, and a translation of parts of the gospel into the local Tuscan dialect, amongst much else. He even produced satiric travel books poking fun at the habits of Germans, Spanish and Neapolitans. All of this from a man who, we think, never travelled outside his native province. Just to give you the flavour of his comic travel guides, he pointed out that German Catholics only recognised four of the deadly sins as, in their opinion, gluttony, greed and drinking were all virtues. He wrote plays in 1544 until shortly before his death in 1587. Initially he wrote Commedia Eredita, based on Terence and Plautus, and then turned to a similar form but taking up religious themes that became known as Commedia Spirituali. Both these forms used five-act structures. Later, he varied and generally reduced the length and structure of the religious comedies, which became known as Drami Sacri. He also wrote farces that mixed the sacred elements with rustic profanity, similar to the way we've already seen in his near contemporaries. These farces were written for the carnival season, so are light-hearted and have a broad appeal. Beyond the carnival season, they were presented in gardens and courtyard spaces and sometimes for the Medici and the other great families in their grand houses and palaces. In 1586, a theatre was added to the Uffizi Palace, giving the Medici a purpose-built theatre for the first time. The plays were performed by troops that were originated for the carnival season but then found an amateur or semi-professional life touring plays to whoever would give them a venue and some payment. Performances produced by the Medici and other wealthy citizens could be very grand, using the talents of some of the best artists and craftsmen of the day. We've already heard of Raphael's involvement with scenic painting and set design, but others like Vasari and Cellini were also employed for specific productions. 
but for the majority of performances, the resources were more meagre, and players still took advantage of action being in streets before houses, requiring minimal scenery and change of location, just as their Roman ancestors had. At this time, Florence was a city full of artists and scholars of every flavour, but was also a thriving mercantile city, with a new middle class of prosperous traders who had money to spend on leisure activities. Cecchi, thanks to his personal family history and the need for him to make his own way in the city, was at the upper end of this middle-class bulge, spotted the potential to appeal to that particular part of the audience, and wrote his plots and characters accordingly. Nothing much was new about his stories and plots, Terence and Plautus still loomed large at least in the early days, but he translated the characters from servants and masters to middle-class characters, so that the audience of the day could recognise themselves in the play so much so that some have called his work bourgeois comedy. In the preface to his first play, The Dowry, he freely admits that he is plundering plot and characters from Plautus, in this case from The Thrupany Day, which itself was based on the Greek play Theosaurus by Philemon. Cecchi is positively proud to announce the dependency of his play on Plautus, to show off his own learning, but actually he then strives to improve on the original. Unlike the Romans in relation to their Greek originals, he transfers the location from Greece to Florence, amends character names to Italian, changes the behaviour of stock characters, creates some new characters, edits out others and changes the order of scenes to increase the suspense in the plot. It's fair to say that this is an adaptation of Plautus and certainly not just a copy. His prologue to the dowry also diverts us from what had been the norm since ancient Roman period of explaining the plot before the play starts. Cecchi acknowledges that his audience are intelligent enough to follow all the plot twists without preemptive explanation. The play is light comedy, but he manages to gently push a message about the current habits of the marriage market, where the chief concern in Florentine society was becoming how to improve wealth and fortune through marriage, rather than for a concern for the well-being and the happiness of the couple in question. Following the lead of Aristino, he rewrote the play in verse 40 years later, prolonging its popularity through his lifetime, although now critics generally hold the original prose version to be superior. His next play, The Wife, merged Plautus and Terence, using the Monachmus brothers and Andrea respectively. His combination of the plots makes for an incredibly busy play that many may have found difficult to follow, despite his earlier confidence in their abilities and the delivery in local Tuscan vernacular. But the truth is that Shakespeare did a better job of it in The Comedy of Errors by avoiding many of the complexities of the plot that Cecchi thought acceptable. Perhaps of most interest to us now is the array of minor characters that paint an exuberant picture of the working classes in Florence. The officious customs officer, the baker, the weaver and the less original quack doctor who tries to cover his lack of ability with Latin phrases provide a colourful background to the main action. The Tarentine element of the plot brought up the concern with the reasons for a good marriage again, as did the subject of his next play, The Trousseau, written in 1545. Quite an obsession for a man who was not to marry until he was in his late thirties, an old age for a marriage at the time. Some purists at the time disliked the mixing and merging of different Roman plays and referred to the practice as contaminato, but in his early career as a dramatist it was Cecchi's default preference and proved a crowd-pleaser every time. 
His next play, The Slave Girl from 1546, gives something a bit different, but is still, in essence, an adapted Roman play. At first glance, the eponymous character is a problem. 16th century Italy was not a slave society, but as characters they remained useful in the familiar plots and apparently their use gave Cecchi little concern. The fact that an audience could relate to slaves can probably be explained by two facts of their current situation. Citizens of the peninsula who travelled by sea were vulnerable to pirates who operated in the Aegean and the Mediterranean. At the time, those of Turkish origin were the most active. So there was an existential fear of being captured by pirates and therefore ending up in slavery. In reality, this touched very few people. But much closer to home was the knowledge that, at the lower end of society, some were so poor and forced into such menial and low-paid jobs that they were, to all intents and purposes, if not slaves, then indentured labour, with no hope of fair treatment, let alone advancement. In the play, Alfonso, a young man from Genoa, buys a slave, Adelphia, in the Turkish markets. Unknown to him, she is of Italian origin. When he brings her home, his father, Filippo, becomes obsessed with the girl and schemes to wrest her from his son. To assist his plans, he engages his wealthy neighbour, Nostagio, who has a son called Ippolito. Having agreed to help, Nostagio sees the danger in the situation and tries to get Filippo to contain his desires, pointing out how unbecoming they are for an older man. But he is determined. Alfonso plays into his father's hands when he describes Adelphia as his property and possession. Filippio quotes the Bible at his son to point out that the possession of the son belongs to the father. But Alfonso is not persuaded, and a long quarrel between father and son ensues, throughout which the young woman in question is absent from the stage. Yes, once again this is Roman comedy adapted to 16th century Italy, and in this case Mercata by Plautus is the model. The well-known intergenerational struggle is represented by Filippio's desires in the face of his age and near impotence. The youthful Alfonso proves to be the better man when he genuinely falls for Adelphia himself and marries her. The foiled Filippio won't give up and abducts the girl, hiding her in Nostagio's house. He plans to wine and dine her and then smuggle her onto a ship to get away from Genoa, but his plans are upset by his hopeless servant. Nostagio's wife returns and is convinced her husband has brought the attractive girl into his house for his own pleasures and berates him as he struggles to explain himself. Realising that his friend's house is no safe hiding place, Filippio plans to pass Adelphia to Apollonia, a madam who has her own designs on the slave girl, but she is rescued. In the process, her only possession, a box of trinkets, is revealed to prove her identity as Nastagio's long-lost daughter, and Alfonso and Ippolito reconcile their differences that have developed in the play once they realise they are brothers-in-law, and the inheritance and fortunes of the families are recognised and secured for the younger generation. It is a classic recognition scene, except that the traditional explanation of the plot and appeal for the audience for applause is delivered not by a servant character, but by Filippio himself. Although recognisable as a Roman comedy, the play includes many changes from Plautus's original. Filippio is the central character, who Cecchi manages to make likeable, despite his unsettling lust for young flesh and his unabashed hypocrisy. More Greco-Roman adaptations followed, but in 1549, Cecchi produced an original comedy called The Hooded Owl. 
This is considered his masterpiece, and in terms of popularity and longevity, rivals Machiavelli's Mandragola. In the prologue, Cecchi proudly announces its originality. He says, It is taken neither from Terence nor from Plautus, but as you will hear from something which happened recently in Pisa, between some young students and a gentlewoman. In fact, I think this event is such as it will leave you with pleasant feelings and be worthy of your attention. But do not think this comedy originates from the sack of Rome or from the siege of Florence, or because persons become refugees because families had to plea or some such other event. Neither does it finish with marriages, as the majority of comedies do. No, in this comedy, you will not hear anyone complain that they have lost sons or daughters because, quite simply, no one loses anybody. No one will be married off because one of the virtues of this group of characters, one of their happy rules, is that they cannot get entangled in marriage, be it their own or that of others. Then what, I hear you ask, does this comedy deal with? Well, I'll tell you. It is an event that occurred in less than a day and one which you will hear about right away if you will give us that welcome attention that we always seek at shows like this and which you have granted to other comedies by this same author. And if by chance this play seems slightly more licentious either in words or action than in this playwright's other plays you must excuse him because while writing for once to get away from marriage and the discoveries of long-lost children there was nothing he could do about it. Of course, it's ever true that nothing is completely original and Cecchi can only claim originality in not slavishly copying a predecessor. There are still plenty of borrowings from works like The Decameron for the bawdier elements of the comedy. The plot twists probably owe something to Mandragola and there are individual lines that are lifted from other Roman comedies. His claim that the play is based on real events should be taken with a large pinch of salt and is rather an attempt to emphasise its originality and modernity. In the play, a young widow of Pisa, Alfonsina, and her son, Rinuccio, share their house with a lodger, Guilio. The young men are both students and friends. Their close neighbour is Ambrogio, an old lawyer who is handling a case for Alfonsina. He is uncontrollably jealous of his young wife, Oretta. She and Rinuccio have never met, but having heard of her beauty, he is determined to seduce her. He enlists the help of Guilio in this project, not realising that his friend also has desires on Oretta, and in turn he enlists the help of his servant to plan how he may use the situation to his advantage. Although Ambrogio is too old to satisfy his young wife in bed, and much of the crude humour is derived from this fact quite explicitly, he has developed a passion for Anfonsina and is determined to do whatever he can to bed her. Oretta and Anfonsina happen to meet when they attend a sacred play being performed at a local convent. Aretta overhears Anfonsina describing the troublesome attentions of an old man who she then recognises as her husband. They connect over their mutual outrage and agree a plan to expose Ambrogio and his foolishness by engineering a situation where Aretta will disturb him with Anfonsina in her bedroom. Rinuccio then learns of this plan from his mother's servant and he sees an opportunity. With Guilio's help, they make it known that they will be out of town for a day or two and then forge a letter from Anfonsina to Ambrugio, inviting him to her home that night. The eager Ambrugio arranges for his servant to stand guard alternately between the two houses, and they establish a warning call should anyone unexpectedly come along to disturb his time with Anfonsina. At any sign of danger, the hapless servant is to hoot like an owl. 
Oretto dresses as a man in disguise. As it's carnival time, this is not inappropriate, and Ambrogio and his servant have dressed as pages to a noble, but they don't carry it off quite so well, again being the butt of much humour. The cross-dressing continues as Guilio has disguised himself as a maidservant. As all the main protagonists move on and off stage in a series of near misses, Rinuccio gives Ambrugio's servant a good beating and, proving to be a coward, he runs off so that when a series of events lead to Ambrugio being trapped in the courtyard almost naked, his wild hooting goes unacknowledged and he is trapped. Characters come on stage to report the amorous encounters that they have enjoyed in the darkened rooms off stage, but nothing is quite as it seems. Oretta believes that she has enjoyed the renewed attentions and vigour of her husband, but in fact it was Guilio who was waiting for her. Renuccio believes that he has also enjoyed the company of Oretta, but has in fact spent his time with her married sister, who happened to be visiting. Ambrugio's ambitions remain unachieved as he shivers in the cold, but Oretta and her sister are invigorated by their experiences and, when they understand exactly what has happened, look forward to repeating the experience and even discuss swapping partners. It is an amoral piece at best, but the humour is light and the action fast pace. It's a real farce, with disguise piling on intrigue. It doesn't attempt a moral message at all, unless one counts the advice that old men really should not marry young wives whose physical needs they cannot satisfy. It's a story set in carnival time and presented as part of this carnival fun, which perhaps explains why Chechi could get away with being quite so explicit and amoral. The verbal jousting in the play mirrors the physical comedy, where there is lots of jumping in and out of windows, sudden appearances and, of course, the comic cross-dressing. The script is in the local Florentine dialect and full of pithy sayings and sharp epigrams that can still give us a flavour of Florentine life at the time. When Ambrugio despairs of finding a trustworthy servant to guard his wife, he says, It would be like leaving the geese guarding the lettuce. His low opinion of the serving classes is summed up when he says, To a thick skull one should feed thick soup. When Rinuccio asks if a servant can be bribed into silence, he's told, I think that would be difficult, even with a knife shoved down his throat. There are many more, and Cecchi leans heavily on the dictionary of proverbs that he had created. The amoral tone of The Haunted Owl and the equal prominence given to the concerns of the male and female characters made the play a popular hit for many years. The lack of a strong moral message meant that it could be laughed at or laughed with, depending on your point of view, and therefore managed broad appeal. The comparison to Mandragola is justified, and both plays were often presented in the same bill. In perhaps the strangest conjoining ever, both plays were presented at a gala in the town hall in Florence. They were not performed consecutively, but the first act of Mandragola was followed by the first act of The Horned Owl, then the second act of Mandragola, and so on. Quite what the intention or benefit of this odd approach was is difficult to say, but apparently it was much enjoyed by all who saw it. Cecchi continued to provide plays for the carnival players on a regular basis, until his family troubles meant he had to focus on his work as a notary, but after a five-year gap he was back with more adaptations of Plautus and Terence. He became steadily more moralistic as he aged, but never quite lost his anti-clerical stance and willingness to poke fun at the pompous old men, the statesmen, lawyers, clerics and doctors, who thought themselves better than those they served. His work translating the Gospels interrupted his output of plays, and when he returned with Il Matello, the Hammer, in 1561, his increased piety was evident. Where earlier he had celebrated amoral life in his plays, now redemption triumphs over the immorality of the characters. 
Through the early 1570s, he wrote four religious dramas and then moved back to comedy and in his later years he moved freely between the two forms. In his comedies, the themes remained concerned with marriage, wealth and family relations across the generations, but with a religious overtone where God's influence on man's actions was always present. Despite his growing religiosity, he does not shy away from crude language and scenes and storytelling concerning lust and sexual intrigue that would have been unacceptable outside the liberal atmosphere of the carnival. In his final years, Chechi took to writing religious dramas only, but his comedies remained popular and frequently performed in Florence and in the local area. When he died, aged 69, he was the most popular playwright in the region, largely thanks to his prolific output and ability to work across two very different genres. What appealed to his audiences was the colourful use of language by his characters, and although based on stock types, they were given local vigour by the expressive use of this local language. Character comes alive in Chechi's work in a way that had not been seen before, and their view was a Florentine one at a time when the scope and influence of Florence was expanding. This outward reach certainly helped the popularity of his work, as did the fact that almost all of his plays found their way into print in his lifetime, and therefore became much more freely accessible than was the case for most of his predecessors. And we're not quite done with Chechi yet. Next time I'll start by taking a look at his later religious dramatic output and then it's on to more Italian playwrights who try to pick their way through the ever-changing landscape of the Italian Renaissance. In the meantime, I hope you enjoyed my offering for the holiday season Dancing Dan's Christmas. If you have some time after we've all done celebrating, please consider writing a review for Apple Podcasts. Reviews really help with the visibility of independent podcasts in a crowded space, so if you like what I'm doing here, please take a moment to put those thoughts out there. On the Patreon feed, there's a new episode in the Henslow's Diary series looking at the activity of the Rose Theatre in Easter week, 1594. You can get all of this and more at patreon.com slash thoetp for a small monthly fee. Alternatively, please just spread the word about the podcast to anyone you think might be interested. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can always contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp.